Are you afraid of something you know isn't real? The boogeyman? Bloody Mary? Are you the kind of person who can tell yourself monsters don't exist, but then check the closet and under the bed, just in case? Maybe you've heard one of the ridiculous urban legends that have been passed down through the decades, and you've always laughed them off, but somewhere in the secret recesses of your brain you think, what if? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who doesn't believe there's alligators in the sewer in New York, but also doesn't stand very close to a storm drain. This week, I'll tell you about four urban legends and try to uncover the grain of truth hidden inside of them and maybe figure out why we insist on holding on to outlander stories in the first place. On January 30th of 1997, the New Orleans Police Department released this public statement. Internet subscribers, over the past six months, the New Orleans Police Department has received numerous inquiries from corporations and organizations around the United States warning travelers about a well-organized crime ring operating in New Orleans. This information alleges that this ring steals kidneys from travelers after they have been provided alcohol to the point of unconsciousness. After an investigation into these allegations, the New Orleans Police Department has found them to be completely without merit and without foundation. These warnings that are being disseminated through the internet are fictitious and may be in violation of criminal statutes concerning the issuance of erroneous and misleading information. First of all, could you imagine police departments today having to issue a statement every time erroneous and misleading information was being spread around online? It would literally be the only thing they ever did. Anyway, what in the world was this all about? In the early days of the internet, there was a super annoying thing called email chain letters. They were usually either warning about how people were placing needles infected with HIV on gas pumps so unsuspecting gas station customers would get HIV. Spoiler alert, not true. Or they were a, quote, good luck charm. But you had to forward the email to 10 of your best girlfriends or you would suffer from eternal damnation or something. Or that a super-organized crime ring of organ harvesters was preying on poor, unsuspecting businessmen in hotel bars. One such email went like this. Dear friends, I wish to warn you about a new crime ring that is targeting business travelers. This ring is well-organized, well-funded, has very skilled personnel, and is currently in most major cities and recently very active in New Orleans. The crime begins when a business traveler goes to a lounge for a drink at the end of the workday. A person in the bar walks up as they sit alone and offers to buy them a drink. The last thing the traveler remembers until they wake up in a hotel room bathtub, their body submerged to their neck in ice, is sipping that drink. There is a note taped to the wall instructing them not to move and to call 911. A phone is on a small table next to the bathtub for them to call. The business traveler calls 911 who have become quite familiar with this crime. 
the business traveler is instructed by the 911 operator to very slowly and carefully reach behind them and feel if there is a tube protruding from their lower back. The business traveler finds the tube and answers yes. The 911 operator tells them to remain still, having already sent paramedics to help. The operator knows that both of the business traveler's kidneys have been harvested. This is not a scam or out of a science fiction novel. It is real. It is documented and confirmable. If you travel or someone close to you travels, please be careful. Regards, Jerry Mayfield, Austin Ops Engineering Manager. In a piece about this particular urban legend on Medium, the author referred to the people usually suckered into forwarding these emails as, quote, concerned great aunts, which honestly just sounds like the modern day and slightly more polite version of spinsters. Oh, you know, those great aunts, so gullible and stupid, what with all the not having children of their own and everything. It seems that despite any coverage of this horrific serial crime in any media outlets, people believed that so many people were having their organs illegally harvested that 911 operators were quite familiar with it. But look, if you don't believe the author of that email, Jerry Mayfield, Austin Ops Engineering Manager, whatever that means, then take it from one of the people who responded to that email. A writer for Snopes gathered some of the public responses from regular people to the organ harvesting email found around the internet. Among them was this very credible response. Yes, this does happen. My sister-in-law works with a lady that this happened to her son's neighbor who lives in Houston. That is some solid evidence, folks. But... If people with too much time on their hands confidently spreading bullshit as fact seems harmless enough, may I point out two things? One, the 2016 and 2020 elections, and two, it's all fun and games until someone suffers real violence because of a bunch of itchy fingers hitting the forward button on emails. A variation of the organ harvesting rumor was spread around Central America in the 90s as well. In this version, it wasn't wayward business travelers, but children. Supposedly, tourists from the U.S. were visiting Central America to steal children and sell their organs. There's no better way to whip up a frenzy than to claim the poor, innocent children are being hurt. As the panic spread, locals began suspecting and attacking tourists, leading to false arrests, small riots, and to an Alaskan woman suspected by town members of kidnapping an eight-year-old boy, getting stabbed eight times, suffering two broken arms and a fractured skull, and putting her into a coma. The missing boy was later found, having definitely not been kidnapped by the woman who was now in a coma. The woman ended up surviving, but with lasting physical consequences. Most urban legends can be traced back to something. Like, a man with a hook most likely won't kill you if you park at Lover's Lane, but, you know, there was the whole Zodiac Killer thing, in which an actual bad guy stalked couples on Lover's Lane and was never caught. Why not just go ahead and give him a hook for a hand? 
Only a few years after New Orleans PD issued their statement about the organ harvesting hoax, two human rights activists noticed that the number of available organs for transplant in China couldn't possibly correspond to the number of volunteer organ donors. They conducted an investigation and released a report in 2006 that strongly suggested, based on a lot of circumstantial evidence, that the People's Republic of China was engaging in illegal and involuntary seizure of organs from unwilling members of the Falun Gong spiritual discipline. The people of Falun Gong have been discriminated against for decades in China with some serious claims of persecutions including mass incarcerations, torture, labor camps, and executions. The report claimed that there were over 41,000 organs over a six-year period that could not be accounted for legally. At first, China was like, what are you talking about? That's definitely not true. But by 2014, facing insurmountable evidence against it, China sort of admitted to a project of harvesting the organs of executed prisoners, the vast majority of whom were members of Falun Gong. As far as I can tell, China never came out and officially said, yes, we did this. But still, they issued a statement saying they would, quote, phase out the practice of taking organs from executed prisoners. Which is, I guess, the legal way of being like, I didn't do this, but if I did, which I didn't, I will start stopping as of now. And like, phase out? What do you need to phase out? Just fucking stop doing it. It goes like this. We're not going to harvest the organs of executed prisoners anymore. Done. It turns out there was also some nefarious organ harvesting of the kidneys of, quote, indigents in India going on in the 90s. The perpetrators would identify men who were down on their luck and be like, hey, we have a cool job opportunity for you. It requires a quick medical check. Oh, wow. Wouldn't you know we found a problem with your kidney? No worries. We'll just pop that sucker right out for you. No cost. And then after harvesting their kidneys, they'd basically just be like, psych, bye. Eventually, the Indian government was like, knock that shit off. So, stories of illegal organ harvesting didn't come out of nowhere. It does seem like, as with most urban legends, there was a grain of truth, and a bunch of people with too much time on their hands turned that grain into a shiny pearl of utter nonsense involving hapless business travelers, bathtubs full of ice, and bad guys in Las Vegas. And honestly, if illegal organ harvesting was going to happen anywhere in the States, Vegas is the most likely place. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And apparently what doesn't happen in Vegas doesn't stay with your co-worker's friend's mother-in-law's next-door neighbor. Crimes against humanity in China and India aside, there is not a shred of evidence pointing to any organized ring of nefarious organ harvesters in the U.S. This next urban legend, though, may have been caught on camera. Let's stay in China since we're already there, shall we? In Taiwan, there's a really old urban legend about mountain gremlins who generally are more annoying than dangerous. Their basic MO is to lure hikers away from the trail and feed them bugs and dirt until they're either found and rescued or die from dehydration. 
Dirt and bugs, it turns out, not very hydrating. In most recent years, the legend has grown to include gremlins disguising themselves as a little girl in red. I suppose the idea is people might be more likely to be tricked by an innocent little girl than a literal gremlin. In 2014, a woman in her 80s was caught on CCTV wandering off after using a public restroom. She was found hours later, apparently pretty deep up in the mountains, disoriented, barely conscious, and I'm just going to assume scared out of her mind. Like, this wasn't an easy jaunt up a picturesque hill. It was a trek up and into a mountain with no equipment. People claim to be able to see a red figure lurking behind the woman in the CCTV footage, but in the YouTube clip I watched about it, a video editor was basically like, do you know how easy it is to cut and paste something into a video? And he demonstrates it, making the little red figure move back and forth like some demon salsa dancer. But you know people, once they've seen something on the internet, it's gospel truth. Probably the most infamous story about the girl in red comes from 1998 when a family was on a day hike in Taizong. One of the family members stood off to the side of the trail, filming the hikers as they went by. Now, in the story I read about this on Reddit, I know, I know, the camera is said to be a Super 8, which is weird because I'm fairly certain camera technology had advanced by 1998, but whatever. Maybe they were a film school student. Anyway, one by one, the family walks by the camera, smiling and waving, and there, at the very back of the line, is a child-sized person wearing what looks like a red sweatsuit and white sneakers following maybe six feet behind the group. For the sake of the argument, let's say this was the little girl in red, okay? That's what people believe anyway. The story goes that a few days after the hike, one of the family members died suddenly under, quote, unknown circumstances. When the family went back and watched the footage from the hike, they noticed the child following them throughout their entire journey. Apparently, she didn't belong to anyone on the hike, and supposedly no one had seen her while they were hiking. Not only that, but her face looks weird and distorted. Her eye sockets and mouth are dark. And people say it looks like she's floating, that her feet never touch the ground. They showed the footage to a priest who was like, yeah, this shit is cursed. Don't show this footage to anyone else. But of course they did. And before anyone knew it, they had shared it publicly and it was picked up by all the late night talk show hosts. And now everyone in China is cursed. That last part's not true. It was picked up by late night talk show hosts and some news outlets. I'm pretty sure everyone in China isn't cursed. It's also on YouTube. I've watched it a bunch of times, but don't worry about my soul. I was already cursed when I watched it, so I was vaccinated. Side note, that is not science. Here's the thing. Super 8 film isn't known for its crystal clarity. One could argue that everyone's face looks distorted at a certain distance from the camera. Also... I don't know what other people's definition of floating is, but the kid in the film is glumphing behind the group, like a black bear on its hind legs. Her body language says, My family made me come on this stupid day hike and made me walk all the way in the back, catching everyone's farts, and I just know that afterward they're going to say I'm not in the family, and they didn't even know I was there, and I'm some demon. Ugh, I'm going to kill someone when I get home. 
But if it was staged, how slash why would the girl agree to be cast as a literal gremlin? Like, the family was like, you know what would be fun? If you were all red and we went up into the mountains and filmed you walking behind us and then claimed you were a gremlin. Like, what kid would agree to that? School is awful enough. You want to add the extra layer of being accused of being an evil mountain gremlin to the mix? Also, if the footage got picked up by every media outlet, wouldn't someone have come forward and been like, um, that's just their daughter, Lynn. My kid has swimming class with her every Saturday at three. Some people claim that the face of the person who subsequently died also goes black and distorted for a moment on the film. But like I said, I watched it a bunch of times and didn't see anyone's face distort. We'll post the clip on our social medias and you can judge for yourselves. But let's travel back to the United States for our next urban legend. In a blog post called The Vanishing Hitchhiker Debunking an Urban Legend, a guy named Jack Osborne, not Ozzy's son, retells, and by retells I mean clearly plagiarized, a story about a man in Baltimore who picked up a woman in an evening gown. She needs a ride home and promises to tell him why she ended up hitchhiking in her evening gown on the way. But when he gets to the address she gave him, she's gone, seemingly disappeared into thin air. The man knocks on the door of the address she had given him, and a sad-looking man answers and explains that the woman is his daughter who died in a car accident at the intersection from which the man had picked her up. Apparently, this guy is like, yeah, yeah, I know, she does this every Saturday. Jack Osborne doesn't cite the source of this story, but it can be found, word for word, on Snopes. The Vanishing Hitchhiker story is one that seems to cross oceans, languages, and cultures. The oldest recorded version probably comes from the Bible when someone picks up a hitchhiker who baptizes them and then disappears, which probably means the guy was Jewish and before he could be like, what the hell did you just do to me? The baptizer was like, I'm out. Unsolved Mysteries did an episode on the vanishing cab passengers in Japan after the tsunami in 2011. They would hail a cab, give their destination, and then at some point just vanish from the backseat of the cab. Another version of the vanishing hitchhiker story has the phantom rider giving the driver a prophecy. Crops will be super good this year, or a plague is on the way, or Jesus will return. And in modern times, when saying you have a direct line to God is kind of frowned upon, what better way to get the masses in line than to claim an unsuspecting cabbie received a message from the beyond? That way, a politician doesn't have to have egg on their face by being like, God called me last night and said, vote for me again. But instead, they can launch a publicity campaign about a cab driver who received that message from a vanishing passenger. You don't have to take my word for it. Listen to Joe Cab Driver. Too bad we haven't received a vaccine mandate from one of these disappeared cab fares. The vanishing hitchhiker slash passenger legend is weird because it seems like most urban legends are set up as a warning. If you do this, something terrible will happen to you. Like how when I tell my eight-year-old that if he doesn't clean his room, a giant demon will rise through the earth and swallow him into the bowels of hell. Just a little white lie to get a desired result. I'm a really good parent. But this urban legend doesn't have a deadly consequence. It's not like the passenger is some escaped insane asylum murderer. 
The driver doesn't die a few days later. They don't get possessed by their passenger. The passenger just disappears. Like, if anything, you'd think that this would encourage people to pick up passengers, if only to have a cool story to tell people later about the ghost that vanished from their backseat. Okay, so now I've told you a handful of highly questionable urban legends, stories that are pretty easily written off. But there is an urban legend that, it turns out, is more real than anyone knew. When I was little, I had a recurring dream that I was on the subway in New York City, where I was born and raised, and the train would be stopped in between stations, as it frequently is, because even though the New York City subway system is well over 100 years old, the MTA has never gotten its shit together. And I saw, out the window, an entire underground community of people. It looked like a cross-section of a crude two-story apartment building. Like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie set, if Paul Thomas Anderson made movies about people so desperate they've decided to live underground instead of about dissatisfied wealthy people. Whenever I rode the subway, I would look for this underground city, but I never saw it in real life. I asked my mother if people lived in the subway tunnels, and she assured me they did not. Turns out, though, baby Daisy Egan was psychic. That, or dreaming about people living underground, is pretty common. Let's go with the version where I'm psychic. A New York Times article from 1990 was the first to report on people living in abandoned train tunnels in New York City. To be clear, I was having the people living in the subway tunnel dreams before 1990. Yes, I am that old. The article describes a very low-key, quiet lifestyle of maybe 100 people living specifically in the abandoned train tunnels on the Upper West Side of Manhattan near the Hudson River. The men interviewed for the article had all intended for the situation to be temporary, but by 1990, a few of them had been living there for over a decade. Some made homes in the cinder block rooms that had once been used by railroad workers who laid the track more than 100 years earlier. Others built homes from plywood. They called themselves mole people and described the community as respectful, hardworking, and clean. But in 1993, journalist Jennifer Toth published a long-form report about her experience meeting and hanging out with the mole people living under the streets of New York City. According to Toth, there were thousands of people living underground in the spider web of subway and train tunnels with communities of organized social systems, mayors, schools, hot showers, laundry facilities, kitchens, and gyms. Toth's piece came under scrutiny by some guy who was like, oh, sure, a woman did this all by herself. His argument was that she made up a lot of the stories and that her facts were unverifiable. And it's definitely true that, at least at first glance, some of what Toth claims seems suspect. Like, how could there be an entire society underneath the city? But people have been organizing themselves into communities since the dawn of humanity. It's kind of our thing. 
And if you clear your mind of whatever pops into it when you think of a laundry facility or a gym, and remember that for thousands of years, humans did laundry and exercised without Planet Fitness or suds and more cleaners, it's not hard to imagine that a group of people all living in the same area together, ungoverned by conventional rules and laws, might come together and organize the basic facilities it takes to live. Like you'd find enough little propane stoves or even just scavenged bricks and stones to make a fire pit. And eventually you're like, why not put all these in one place so that everyone has access to them? I know we usually think of a bunch of lawless humans together automatically devolving into some Lord of the Flies situation, but what if that wasn't necessarily always the case? It's very possible that a group of people who share the common interest in staying alive might actually work together. Also, I've said it before and I'll say it again, people who are homeless are a lot like people who aren't homeless. In a community of, let's say, 200 people living underground, you would likely find a doctor, a teacher, a gym trainer, a chef. People don't forget how to do the things they were trained to do just because they don't have homes. It's not impossible to imagine that Bob the chef offers to cook for his neighbors in exchange for, I don't know, a personal trainer or or medical care. It's not all sunshine and roses down there in the bowels of New York City. Actually, there's no sunshine or roses at all. Toth describes the desperation, substance addiction, and mental illness that plagues the people living underneath New York. She claims there was a gang underneath Harlem that made their money through contract killings. And a man nicknamed Dark Angel told her to leave the tunnels before they swallowed her up and she became his. Despite the dangers, Toth kept going, armed with a friendly demeanor and a can of mace. It wasn't until one man she had befriended had decided that she witnessed him commit a murder and began stalking her. It's unclear whether Toth actually did see the guy kill someone or if the guy did indeed actually kill someone. The man had paranoid schizophrenia. Regardless, Toth literally had to flee the country. On the other hand, filmmaker Mark Singer spent time living among the mole people for his 2000 documentary Dark Days. And where Jennifer Toth had to flee for her life, Mark Singer won a Sundance Award. Amtrak came through in the mid-90s and cleared the people out of the tunnels on the Upper West Side to reinstate the rail line. But the thing about clearing people out of their homes without giving them better options is that they'll usually end up right back where they were. And sure enough, plenty of people are still living under the streets of New York City. A report on ABC News in 2019 said the numbers had increased by 20% from the year before. I'm sure with the pandemic, those numbers rose again. According to the report, an MTA-sanctioned task force issued a list of recommendations, including enhancing homeless outreach, expanding the MTA's police force by 50%, and educating the public on the MTA's rules of conduct. Is it just me, or are actual useful things like housing, medical care, food, and real education missing from those recommendations? Lord knows throwing more police at a problem is always a helpful solution. Anyway.
Maybe I really did see people living in the subway tunnels when I was little. It makes perfect sense for people who don't have a home to go seek shelter in empty spaces. Whether that's an abandoned building or subway tunnel doesn't make much difference. I'm sure I didn't actually see some kind of dystopian dollhouse of makeshift homes. But who knows? Maybe I saw one small home in passing and my mind turned it into a kind of human-sized diorama of an entire community. Which leads me to a very basic question. Why do we make up these stories and pass them around? Why do some urban legends grab hold and never let go? Is it easier to get our point across in a parable than in basic instructions? If you stray too far, the gremlin slash little girl in red will come get you? Is that why the Bible is written as a series of stories rather than just like an instruction manual? In retrospect, that seems like a poor choice. Just giving a list of instructions might have been slightly less open to interpretation than whatever it is we're supposed to get from the book of Revelations, you know? I'll leave you with this last story. When I was 10, Mandy Patinkin took me to Disneyland so we could bond before we started rehearsals for The Secret Garden. And if that entire sentence was confusing, go back and listen to episode four. Aside from following a woman with a hunchback through the entire park so he could learn how she moved, I was mortified. He told me that people were kidnapping children from highly populated places like amusement parks and malls. The kidnappers would take the poor, helpless child to the bathroom and dye their hair and change their clothes and then just walk right out with the kid unnoticed. You can bet your ass I made sure not to leave his sight for the rest of the day. No matter how embarrassed I may have been that we were following a woman all over the place, I was glued to Mandy Patinkin's side. It worked. If he had just said, don't leave my sight... I probably would have been like, yeah, yeah, Nigo Montoya. But as it was, I spent the rest of the day terrified someone would turn me into a redhead and ferret me out of the park in plain view. Urban legends, parables, myths, fairy tales, chain emails. Whatever form they take, they serve to help us make sense of the unknown, give us a tiny sense of control over things we don't understand. The world is a scary enough place without worrying that you're going to wake up in a hotel bathtub full of ice with a kidney missing. We can't stop death. Eventually we'll all go, but at least we can avoid straying too far from the path. At least we can do our best to avoid the gremlins, kidnappers, and dark angels of the underground. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. I'll tell you all about the weird and tragic things that happened on and around the Poltergeist set. Was it a curse or just coincidence? We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me and researched by Jess McKillop. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia and Luther Creek. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. 
If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. Thank you.